First of all, I want to welcome you. I'm always excited. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Every time I have an opportunity to do this, I'm really excited because I don't know what I'm going to say, not because I haven't prepared. I don't know exactly what I'm going to say. I have some ideas. I've been thinking about it. I have prepared. I have some notes, all well and good. But when it comes time to actually stand here and deliver, sometimes there's changes. But I do want to share some things with you today, and I actually want to talk to you about giving. Whether you want to clap or not is fine. Uh, Let's be honest, though. The inclination of most people, if you're sitting in a church, when somebody talks about giving is not to clap. I think that's being just real. If you're normal, that would be accepted. I will not judge you for that. Look, I've been where you are, too. I get it. See, the thing about giving is that If you are normal, and you have been in church for any length of time, and you've actually experienced other discussions, recommendations, even exhortations about giving, your reaction is probably somewhat muted, maybe even tempered, maybe even holding yourself back from raucous enthusiasm like next door. (laughs) And there's a reason, and this is why I'm so excited to talk about it. Because the reality of church experience, unfortunately, is that there is hurt, there is offense, and anytime you're dealing with offense, you know how it goes. Many, we've preached about offense a lot of times, and it often just is resulting out of hurt in the past. And you see circumstances start to line up, and you realize in your mind, as you're observing what's being said, what's being done, how people interact with you, the inevitable conclusion you come to is this. I've seen this movie before. I know how this movie ends, and it's not good. Hurt oftentimes can arise when there's manipulation, control, and all of those wonderful things that human people just, they don't even have to be trained to do. They do it instinctively. Survival of most human people results in manipulation and control. Why? Because it's control. This is not unusual. This is the normal, everyday human experience. And applied in the church, you can easily understand how this would result in you not being particularly enthusiastic when I said in my first line that I'm going to talk about giving. I don't judge you for that. I acknowledge that as a reality. I acknowledge that's perfectly normal. And when you're dealing with offense, there's a lot of different ways you can deal with offense. And the majority of ways you deal with offense is you can deal with it, just you, you and God the majority of times. And oftentimes, more is required. And the root of offense, especially in the area of giving, ultimately comes down to offense with God. That's really what it boils down to. I mean, certainly there are human agents, but ultimately it's offense with God because it's his church. It's his body. It's his people. It's his leaders. It's all his deal. And ultimately, that's the root. And when I considered such a problem and such a task, I got excited. Not because I'm going to solve your problems, but because if the offense ultimately is rooted with God, then I think the most important thing I could say to you is to say what I believe God's perspective is on this whole situation. And if I were to speak for God, this is what I believe he would say want you to know. This was never my intention. 
every feeling that you have in your experience, in your Christian life, in your walk, in churches, with people, that was never my intention. Can he be blamed? Sure, because there's people. But this entirety of your experience in this area was not his intention. You see, was his intention. His intention was for you freedom and liberty in this area. His intention was for you to feel no coercion, to be free to do as you would under no compulsion whatsoever, out of your love for him. That was his intention. You see, the enemy is a party in this escapade that you call your experience. And if you think back to how this all started to show you the playbook that the enemy has, it's actually pretty simple. So we know the story. We know how the church started under the new covenant in Acts. Peter gets up. He delivers the first sermon. 3,000 were saved. And we know, if you want to look, I'm not going to go through the scriptures, in Acts 2, 42, 47, we know the consequence which is representative of his intention in the matter. And the people, as they were gathered, 3,000 were added to their number. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Also goes on to say, all the believers were together and had everything in common. I think they had a pretty good feeling about the togetherness at that point. So, what happened? The next thing that immediately happened is that the leaders were called in by the Sanhedrin to explain themselves because they were spreading what the existing religious system thought was heresy. And you know the story, and it continues on in Acts 4, verses 32, verse 37. After they were ultimately released, they said, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. All the believers were one in heart and mind. You see, what had just happened was the system had sought to bring external pressure to the believing people. That failed. What's the next course of action? Internal, within the body. So what do you see happen? You know the story, Ananias and Sapphira. Some people had been selling land and actually depositing the money just in front of the apostles' feet. So somebody, Ananias and Sapphira, had this idea that we're going to sell a piece of land and we're going to keep back some of it. And that word keep back in the Greek, actually one of the meanings of that word is they embezzled. That's what it is. We know what embezzlement is. And it's not so much about Ananias and Sapphira because they have gained such notoriety, but understand what's going on here. Fantastic birth of a church. Not good from the enemy's perspective. External pressure applied, failed. Next course of action, internal. That's what Ananias and Sapphira represented. And they had opportunity, if they had actually succeeded in sowing in money that was actually resulting from embezzlement, in effect, then a stain would have appeared internally. And what you would have seen is probably what you see just rampant today, which is a distrust, people being unsure about the credibility of what is being proffered as a togetherness. And of course, we know that over the course of time, the enemy has succeeded because we see what we have today. But the point of the matter is this was never God's intention. 
Never has been. But here we are. And I'm excited. Because I have an opportunity to just talk about it honestly and talk to you about what the Word of God says. And you'll see what my intention is, I hope, by the time I'm through. So, we're going to go through a piece of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'm going to give you some context. There's a couple things of context you need to understand. So, this is Paul, and he's writing, and he's stirring up, seeking to stir up the Corinthian church to make a collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And to do so, he's using this example, which is the Macedonian churches, who actually, in a sense, he's comparing them to about what act that they had just done in terms of sowing in to fill a need. So that's the context. Second Corinthians chapter 8. You probably know much more about this passage, more about Second Corinthians chapter 9, which is used quite regularly to talk about sowing and sowing generously and reaping generously. True. But to me, the more interesting part of the entire context of that scripture is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to do this. I'm going to read the scripture. I'll, I'll make a couple comments. But the lens I want you to use as we go through this piece of scripture is a lens of grace. If you've been in a church for any length of time, if you are a Christian, you know what grace is. Because you couldn't sit in your seat if you did it all by yourself. It's not possible. Grace is something that you're actually unable to do, unable to fulfill for yourself. So God, out of his grace, finished the work that you could not accomplish. That's grace. So now we're going to read through, one by one, seven verses, looking at it through the lens of grace. So verse one, and it says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Okay, quick side note, more context. This is a pretty innocuous statement, but there's actually so much going on in context that you need to understand this. See, I told you about the problem. The enemy saw something really good, 3,000 people added to their number, couldn't extinguish it via external pressure, tried to raise something up internally. That wasn't successful with Ananias and Sapphira because the Holy Spirit was clearly keen as to what was going on. More people know about Ananias and Sapphira and less people know what happened prior, just prior to Ananias and Sapphira, which is Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, sold a field, laid it at the apostles' field, and that somehow triggered Ananias and Sapphira to do what they did. And the saddest thing about all of this is Barnabas is somehow forgotten. See, who is this Barnabas? Barnabas was that guy, there's always that guy, who's so encouraging, so uplifting of the brotherhood. See, he gave a field, fantastic, not even known for that. Barnabas was the guy Then, when Saul was persecuting, ultimately came into the fellowship. Barnabas was the guy who reached out and brought Paul into the fellowship. Barnabas was the one who went to Antioch in Acts chapter 11, went to Antioch because there were such great things happening in Antioch, and he saw, my goodness, this is awesome. He went to get Paul, brought Paul to Antioch, and they ministered there for a year and a half. And when a prophet came and said, oh, there's going to be a famine, the Antioch church collected an offering, and Barnabas and Paul were the ones to deliver it to the people. And most people understand Paul because he wrote 14 books of the New Testament, as Clayton said last week. But it wasn't just Paul and Barnabas to start. It was Barnabas and Paul to start. It was, that was the team. It was Barnabas and Paul. They did first missionary. And then it eventually became Paul and Barnabas, and we know Paul and Barnabas split 
because of a disagreement about John Mark, right? But in a sense, you could say Barnabas was the one who mentored Paul, brought Paul into the fellowship. Barnabas was the one who actually was the leader of the team that included Paul. Barnabas was the one who led, in a sense, to be responsive to the word about the famine and actually brought an offering to help those in need. And now Paul is using this example of the Macedonian churches, which Paul visited, but understand that there's a root of encouragement tracing all the way back to Barnabas that I can't help but believe Paul was operating in when he visited the Macedonian churches. And now the Macedonian churches are responsive to say, we are going to give. That's the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Okay, verse 2. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Again, lens of grace. So they have extreme poverty. The flesh, if you're going to be natural, if you're in a state of extreme poverty, you're in survival mode, your flesh says, retain, hold, secure. That's what your flesh would do. That's what your soul is going to demand that you operate in. And yet they operate in a spirit exactly opposite, which is overflowing with joy, which is something is in, in the spirit. In and of themselves, they can't even produce that. It's not possible. What they could produce was to have a closed mentality. But grace said joy. Verse 3. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. It's basically saying what I just said in the previous verse, which I love this verse so much because if it's clarity, it was something beyond what they actually were capable of doing. They couldn't do it in and of themselves. It wasn't even possible. Even if they said to themselves, I'm going to do this, well, that we know is the strength of man. That is know what I can accomplish. That's what I know I can achieve. That wasn't good enough. That's not how they operated. It was beyond their ability. If you want to go in any way, shape, or form, in whatever context, sphere of influence, whatever sphere of authority you operate in, if you want to go beyond your ability, that's called grace. In verse 4, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. It wasn't about them. What you are able and capable and desire often to do is to fulfill your own agenda, to satisfy, the, I'm not criticized, I'm just saying this is real. I'm exactly like this. It's about me. It's about what I hope to accomplish, what is good for me in the future. And this is just simply saying it's a service to somebody other than themselves. It's not even possible for us to think that way but for grace. Not possible. Or at least I know me. Not possible for me. Verse 5, And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. I'm going to leave this one to you a little bit. But understand what this is just saying, that they had this idea of going beyond themselves, even beyond their ability, to give out of joy in their extreme poverty. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and not to us, Paul speaking. And I leave this to you to just think this through. 
Because many of the problems that exist in the church is rooted exactly in this statement. Is that, look, every leader can have a cult of personality. Every leader can have its own charisma. Every leader can have and operate out of their gifts. And it's very easy for a people looking at a leader to begin to give themselves over to the leader, but not God. I leave this to you to just ponder this for a little bit of your church experience of all the great men and women of God that you've, in a sense, looked up to. At some level, you begin to give yourselves over to them, which is not wrong, but never to the exclusion of giving yourself over to the Lord first. Take that one and look at your life out of that lens. That's your homework. Verse 6, so we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. I'll get back to that. Verse 7, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. So, a couple of notes on this. If it didn't actually have the last five words, this grace of giving, we would be all in on this verse. I mean, I'm saying all in, as in nobody would have any problem accepting that as something that they can adopt for their life as a path for them to grow in their faith. Because who wouldn't want to excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us? That's no issue. None. But then there's these last five words. Excel in this grace of giving. So a couple of things about that. It's excelling in this grace. This is not talking about a single instance in your life. Verse 6 actually talks about an act of grace. Whatever your experience is in, in giving, you have had acts and instances of this grace. But that's not even the point. Whether you gave today, yesterday, two weeks ago, I mean, these are points in your life about giving, but that's not even the point. This grace of giving is something upon your life that is a process. And however old you are, however long you are, have been in a church, you're in a process, just like you would be in knowledge. If I were to say, ask to you, do you consider yourself a knowledgeable person? And you, uh, well, you know, I know a little bit. I know that, you know, I can't say I'm going to ascribe to that level of knowledge because you're in process. You know more now than you did a week ago. You certainly know more now than when you were a child. And you've been growing in this thing of knowledge naturally. And that's a good way to understand this suggestion, if I may say, that excelling in this grace of giving is all to say that you are in process, that it is something that is just as important as things like faith and love, and yet ultimately it's rooted in grace. It would mean an entirely different thing, which we, of course we know we don't add or subtract from the Bible. It says excel in giving, that, ooh, I would have a difficult time preaching that message. But excelling in this grace of giving is very easy for me to bring across 
obviously because it's the truth, but more importantly, it's like, what am I actually asking you to do? Actually, nothing. Because by the very definition of grace, it's not even something that you can produce in and of yourself. Can't do it. So I'm saying excel in this grace, which means excel in something beyond yourself that you can't even produce if you set your mind to improve. Set your will to execute. Kept your emotions to check, fear in check, to actually release. You could do all three of those things to the heightened of your soul, man, and that's not what I'm asking you to do. Because grace, by definition, you can't do. It's beyond yourself. So I know you're asking me now, so what exactly am I asking you to do? At this juncture, what I want you to understand, it's a process. And if you were to tick back in your life and think about this whole notion of being open-handed and releasing resources, if you tick through your life, what I bet you will see is that where you were 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 30 years ago, is not where you are today. And if you feel like, I'm, if you're normal, you're going to think to yourself, well, you know, oh, you feel guilty because like, you know, I could have done so much more. I, I should be further. It's like, yeah, I get that. And part of the reason why that may or may not be true, because you're your own self, worst self-critic, is because the enemy has produced something that was never God's intention. There is a lot at stake in this process. Because if I think of process, I think there is an act followed by a series of further acts, but it's the process that unfolds in your life and touches other people's lives. And how do you put... How do you estimate that impact? You can't because you can't see. But you're in process. So, I do have some props. And what I want you to understand is that it is a journey. Because there's two words. It's giving, which is a journey, and it's grace. You can't do it in and of yourself. So, I'm going to take you through a journey through my life. I grew up in the church, and for whatever reason, as I think back in my life, and there's a lot of things that just kind of stick out in your memory for certain reasons, and you can't even understand why. But I'm going to just take you back in my life and talk to you just about a few instances of my experience in this grace of giving. I grew up in the missionary church denomination. We had these things called acorn banks, right there. But I'm gonna, I have to tell you some history. There's always context to everything, and I didn't even realize this until last night, actually. But these are banks that were used, that we were given, that we could put money into, and it was for missions. And they would give it to you, and you'd have a year to actually put money into it, and then at the end of the year, we could break it which is interesting. But the whole idea of this concept came from this gal called Macy Garth in 1903. And she actually had, in a sense, a vision statement for this. And it, this was the vision statement. The promotion of the spirit of missions in the hearts of the children. 
That's where it came from. So she had this vision of getting 50 jugs to deliver to these kids to raise money for missions, as I said, to promote the spirit of missions in the hearts of the kids. So interestingly enough, as I said, the enemy has a well-worn playbook. So she got 50, and these weren't acorn-shaped initially. They are just jugs, but the concept was there. And she got these 50 jugs. She's getting ready to deliver it to the kids, and now just doubt starts creeping in. And this is what was described of that. Macy prayed a great deal about these little banks. Satan talked to Macy the same as he does to you and me. He said, What a waste. You've just thrown your money away. The children will take these jugs home and put them on a shelf. Dust will settle on them. A spider will weave its web over the slot, and not a penny, nickel, or dime will find its way into them. That's what she encountered before she was going to deliver it. But she did. About 70 years later is when I encountered these things. And I got this table, and this is actually how it works. So we would have these banks, right? So we had an opportunity. You know, you get to put money for a year. And then we get to break them. And the way we did in our church, first of all, these are ceramic. This is actually a plastic one. It's just not nearly as fun. But they were ceramic. We'd line up on the stage, and we would slowly get to go where we could break it with a little hammer. And so we would go, and you know, they would basically place it like here. There would be a, a little wooden thing, and you place it kind of upside down here, and you get to break it with a hammer. And you know, this is like the highlight, right? And some of the girls you know, would get up, these little girls, they'd kind of go and kind of tap it a couple times, and, and then they'd kind of take it away. And you know, of course, I'm, I'm here because I'm just a, a little boy. I'm just looking at this like, my goodness, that's just that's awful. I mean, my only thought, I ain't getting excited because I'm thinking, the only thing I care about is when I put it in here and when I smash this thing, how far are the shards of ceramic going to fly? I mean, literally, I mean, I'm looking down the stage and I'm like, wham, wham, wham. And you want to see, you want to see, it was actually good for having the right angle. You know, it's not just down because you want to have projectile ceramic. I'm just being real. Just being real. That's how I started. So, and I did achieve, by the way, having these things fly off onto, off the stage. But a funny thing happened. So, you know, after you have these breaking events and you get another one for the following year. And I remember having it in my room. And, you know, of course, you're putting coins and just normal things, right? And I remember thinking to myself, huh. So I'm putting these coins in, and as I said, it's all about promotion of the spirit of missions in the hearts of kids. I don't even know this. This is seven years after she did this. And I put coins in, just in my room. And the thought comes to me, I said, wait a minute. If a penny or a nickel is good, isn't like a dollar like that much better? I mean, there's a point to all this, right? I mean, this is not some isolated thing about breaking a jug. It's not like the money disappearing into some black hole. I mean, this money is actually going to be used for something, and I'm a kid, and I'm not really thinking that complicated of a mindset. I'm not thinking, I don't have a financial plan. 
I don't. There was no such thing as 401ks. You know, I'd get money for my birthday. My parents would take the money. I didn't see it again. And they told me, well, we're saving for your college. (laughs) You know, so I I didn't have a grand financial plan. But I'm thinking the penny or nickel is pretty good. I mean, how much more impact will I have with a dollar? So I'm thinking, well, let's just start putting dollar bills in. And I read this story of Macy Garth, because it's honor. I don't know where she came up with this idea, but she impacted me, a kid, 70 years after she had this idea, in the spirit. And there's nothing to do about the flesh of what I felt I could accomplish. It was all about something even beyond, all of a sudden you're just thinking beyond yourself, well, it's not about like what I have, what I don't have, it's not about what I can do, it's like... But there's something beyond yourself that this thing will impact. So I just found it, I mean, I'm just sitting down last night looking at this story. I'm just like, oh my goodness. If she had any idea the impact she would have, I think it would just blow her away. Now, to just close up the, this little incident of the story is that she delivers 50 jugs to these kids, and she said in her heart, it's like, you know, I, I believe we have an opportunity. I mean, she had a big, big vision, and she said, I think we, you know, out of these 50 jugs, we can produce $30 after a year. And actually when, you know, the year came back and she, you know, putting the pledge together, she's like, $60. $60, she's thinking. I know $60 is not much, but this is 1903. And they break these 50 jugs, count out the money, is $122.52. Kids, 1903. So I looked up, of course, on the inflationary chart. <laughs> and $122.52 in 1903 equates to today in our wonderful currency, over $3,500 today. Consider, in a sense, in the heart of the kids, you can't even come up with a marketing plan to execute that's going to get you equivalent $3,500 today by 50 kids. I, I just can't even see how that was done. It was so beyond the kids themselves, but the spirit of grace was upon them to execute. So I grew up in Hawaii, small town, fantastic place. So I'm pretty young, and my grandmother was nearby. So I went over to her house one day, and she was picking up mangoes. She knew a lot of people that had mango trees, so she's picking up mangoes. And I'm watching her as she's like picking them up, putting them down, picking another one up, putting them down. And she's going through this bucket full of mangoes. And of course, now I'm wondering, it's like, what are you doing? So I said, Grandma, what are you doing? And she's just picking them up. And she says to me, she's going to give these to her neighbors. And she was examining what she had. She said, you know, you only give your best. So she was just, out of all that she had, picking out her best to give. I'm just a kid. And I didn't realize not preaching to you about tithing, 
There's no better example of what tithing represents than that. I cannot even imagine a better depiction, a better example of a way to explain tithing. Giving of your best. Look, I can go into the scriptures. I can show you the roots of tithing and first fruits. I was preached to by my grandmother. Not out of theory, but just in practical heart action. So as I said, I was young. I'm sure I was odd in many ways. My parents were in ministry, and you know they led, they did everything. I mean, let's just say it that way, in the church. There was not one part of ministry that they weren't involved in. And one of those just happened to be youth. So one of the privileges of most people wouldn't consider this to be a privilege, but they had a youth event, and I wasn't even old enough to be a youth. And so we went to, after the, after whatever, I can't even remember what the event was, we went to a Dairy Queen. I don't even know if Dairy Queen exists much anymore, but I was at a Dairy Queen. I was actually by myself. And I ordered a hamburger or a cheeseburger, can't remember which one. So I remember sitting down, and I'm getting ready to pay, and it was probably like $1.50 something. So I'm kind of taking out of my money and paying for the burger. I verified this, by the way, with the inflation tracker, that like a dollar something is probably worth about $5 today. So I think historically I'm not too far afoot. And of course now I'm thinking, well, I need to give a tip now. You don't have iPhones with calculators or anything like that. I don't know if I was really good at math. But I had to figure out, okay, what's tip? And I'm thinking 10, 15%. So I think, well, so if it, if it's, let's say if it's $1.60, I'll leave it at $1.70. Let's be generous, right? I'm thinking, well, okay, what, what, what kind of tip should I give? Something 10, 15%. And I was thinking, well, that's like a quarter. But I remember sitting there, and I said maybe it was just because I was odd, but I remember sitting there, and I said to myself, you know, I'm going to bless this waitress. Just this idea comes to me. I'm like, I, I'm going to bless this waitress. I gave her like a 20, and there's nothing wrong with 25 cents as a tip. And I said to myself, you know, the idea I had in my head, I'm going to give her like a dollar something as my tip. And my thinking was, she's going to come back and she's going to be surprised. And I just wanted to bless her. So I left the dollar something, and I'm like, it's, you know, whatever the tip rate is, is pretty high. And I was like, you know, I just want to see her reaction. That's what I was thinking. I just like, I'm going to bless her, and she's going to be unexpected. I, I just want to see her reaction. So I, I got up off the table, left the money there, right? And now I'm just waiting for her to come and pick it up. My parents are with all the other kids. I'm like towards the front of the store now, and I'm just like watching the table because I'm like, I, I want to see. Like, I want to see her reaction. That's the whole point. It's like, yeah, it's my money, and I'm giving a tip, but, you know, there's somebody on the other side. And I'm like, wow. And I'm just like, kind of watching from there. I'm just waiting to see. She never came and picked it up. Or at least as long as I was there. Because, you know, eventually my parents are like, okay, we have to go. And I'm like, but, you know, I'm thinking, I, I want to see what happens. But I never did. For whatever reason. There is always somebody on the other side. So fast forward now. It's not my entirety of giving stories. But these are three went back when I was a child that I just remember. See, there's always somebody on the other side. Always. It's not some amorphous thing that we do that are building up somehow credit. It doesn't work that way. That was never God's intention. Never. From the beginning 
of the faith. The intention has always been community. That's his intention. So fast forward many years now, we're actually living in Reston now. And there was a young gal who was going to go on a mission trip. You understand how this kind of goes in Cadence, and you get the mission support letter, and you know, you, you take a look at it. And, but it's not about our side of it so much, but I want to explain to you, understand what's going on, because there is somebody on the other side. So this young gal had a heart for missions, wanted to go on a trip. We got one of her support letters, or it was announced, I can't even remember. And, you know, as often happens, and it comes closer to the date that she has to actually get all the money. So she's in a church, in a sanctuary, and she's praying. She's praying. I need money. I want to go on this trip. It's not resourced to what I know I have to do. She's praying. She's not pounding the streets, canvassing neighborhoods. She's praying. We don't know this is going on. So, unbeknownst to us, this is happening in a church, something similar to this. And so we kind of roll up in our car, you know, just feeling that, you know, we want to give. It wasn't like tons of money or anything. And we roll up, and I remember we roll up into the parking lot, and I, I'd driven, so Marie went into the building, so I don't even know what's going on. And Marie goes into the building, she has an envelope with a check. Or it could have been cash, I don't know, because people actually used cash back then. So from my perspective, she goes into the building, and she comes out, and she's smiling. And I'm like, ooh, interesting. Not that she doesn't smile. <laughs> and she gets in the car, and she says, you know, that was the most amazing thing. This gal is in the church. She's praying. Now, picture her. Picture she's in a church, a sanctuary, and she's praying, God, I believe you want me to go, but I don't have any money. So this is your idea. You're going to have to make a way because I can't do it. Again, back to grace, right? And as she's praying, Marie rolls in with a check or cash in an envelope. And she's like, oh, yeah, we were wanting to give this to you for your trip. So if you ignore our perspective and just look at it from her perspective, she's kind of at the last in the end, and she's praying, asking God, you got to deliver. And all of a sudden, this agent of God comes, nameless faces, it doesn't really matter. But from her perspective, I pray to God to do something that I kind of suspect is sort of impossible. All of a sudden, boom, this person comes with an envelope. It's really important for you to understand that from her perspective, is that a miracle? I don't know what you think about miracles, what they represent, but for her perspective, I think that pretty much qualifies as a miracle. As in, she can tick down like the top 10, like most significant spiritual events in her life. is like, oh my goodness. I mean, I, I prayed. It's like, boom, here it is. That's a miracle. That's the other side. We're on this other side, and you know, we're just minding our own business. And it's like, oh, what we recalled out of that was, number one, it's not even our idea. It's not like we're like, yeah, we're going to come in and save the day. We had no idea any of this is going on. 
This is beyond ourselves. And it just so happened that we were blessed to even have an opportunity to take part in something God was doing in the life of a young gal, growing in her faith and her ultimate dependence and trust that God delivered. To be a participant in that kind of miracle was eye-opening. Now, the sad thing about it is, if I think of God's intention, I think this is normal, everyday life in the body. I'm not asking you to go search out these opportunities. I'm not saying for you to respond immediately to some missions opportunity, because there's many of them. But I think this picture of somebody being resourced just by the hand of God, by the very grace of God, was his intention. There's no compulsion, no guilt, no aspect of that. There's just freedom. And that, I believe, was what the enemy understood was at stake. So I shared these stories to you just to share my life. Do I consider myself a giver? <laughs> Don't ask me that question. Because we're all in process. But I believe, and my intention in just speaking about this today was that we're all in different places. We all have different histories. We all have graces in our lives that have come to various levels of bloom, if you will. But I believe there's a number of you here that are just naturally know that you've been going through this process. And all of you, just as the word was saying, all of you are encouraged to excel. This is, giving is no special thing compared to faith and love and knowledge. It's, it's not a special class of thing. It's just something that is naturally of what God's intention was for his fellowship. That's it. And I trust just today that I just provided you with a perspective to understand what this is all about. And as much as I've learned, it's not about me. I just happen to be a participant in what God intended as just being normal, everyday life. 